Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Let us pray. God, I give you thanks again for your presence with us. And I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, amen. I was reading this week a, a, um, a magazine article that was talking about uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who was the president of Liberty University for a long time. He's the son of, of Jerry Falwell Sr., who was an evangelical uh, leader in the church, but also the founder of Liberty University. And from 2007 to 2020, Jerry Falwell Jr. served as the president of Liberty University. Um, he, his, his dad was one who began this, but by his son's savvy leadership, financial management, and consistent messaging, it grew Liberty to be one of the largest evangelical universities in the world. His success, however, was overshadowed by unsavory details of family affairs, abusive, abusive rhetoric, polarizing politicization of all kinds of things and a social media scandal. And his tenure came to an undignified end in August of 2020. In January of this year, Vanity Fair released a lengthy article chronicling Falwell's story. One of the most cited quotes from this piece came from Falwell, Falwell himself when he said, quote, because of my last name, meaning his father and the family he came from, people think I am a religious person, but I'm not. My goal was to make them realize I was not my dad. And rightfully, this brought some controversy because if you're the president of the largest evangelical Christian university maybe in the world, but you're like trying to distance yourself from religion, it's kind of a weird statement for him to say. And so amidst the backlash, Falwell went on Instagram to qualify his comments. And this is what he said, quote, while I didn't wear my religion on my sleeve to be seen by others, I have nonetheless had a strong faith in Christ and his teachings since college. While I am far from perfect, let me be clear, I believe that Jesus was born a virgin. I believe, uh, born of a virgin, I believe in the deity of Christ as the only son of God. And although his response may have provided some context to his I'm not religious concession in Vanity Fair, it raised some important questions. Specifically, what does it mean to actually be Christian? Does how we live and how we 
exist in a marriage and how we treat people and how we lead organizations, does it matter when it comes to our faith? To what extent, in other words, should our beliefs have a bearing on one's behavior and lifestyle? Falwell Jr.'s carefully worded post separates orthodox beliefs. I believe in Jesus born of a virgin. I believe in the deity of Christ. I believe in his lordship over here. It separates that from moral conduct over here, which seems to suggest that Christian life is primarily qualified by the faculties above one's neck. Meaning what I believe up here is the most important thing. And that is not the truth of the gospel. We should never separate how we live from what we say we believe. So Paul is gonna get into that in Colossians. If you haven't been with us, the first week we talked about the high Christology of Jesus, that they're facing these um, different allegiances in the church of Colossae that's actually putting hope in places it doesn't belong. And when they do that, it's diminishing the height and the truth of what we believe about Christ. So as I raise other things as Lord, I'm actually diminishing the one true Lord, at least in my heart and the way that I live my life. And so Paul's gonna start with a real high Christology to remind us that he was the firstborn of all creations. He is the expression, the fullness of God, that he is before all things, in all things, and he will pull all things, draw all things unto himself. The supremacy of Christ is where Paul starts. And even though we are not the church of Colossae facing the same problems, our problems can be answered almost every time by having a high Christology, by seeing Jesus as Lord of our lives, by taking ourselves and other things off the throne that only Christ should inhabit. And so he starts with a high Christology. The second we, we talked about this supreme Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the one who is over all things, in all things, and through all things, he is also mysteriously in you. He lives in you. That the one who defeated evil, sin, and death itself, his life is put in the one who has given themselves to Christ, that is surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. That is the mystery of faith that God not only made himself near, but God took residence in his people. Which led us to last week, Mark talked about not just individuals, but Christ lives very powerfully in the collective. Christ is in the church. Christ should bring about his reign and power through the church as the church surrenders to him. And today with that reality, our life should resemble and be shaped by all of this that we have just shared. It should look different. We should live into this life very differently. As one commentator puts it, the Colossian Christians have entered the new age and belonging there by right, do not have to struggle to attain the status of membership in God's people. They already have it. They simply allow its life to be worked out in them. Brother and sister in Christ, you don't have to qualify anything anymore. Christ's life has been in you, has been given for you. You are a new creation. However, we have to walk in that life. We have to apply that life. We have to surrender that life. We have to be obedient to that life. We have to let more of that life in us so it's less of us and more of him that is coming out. That's the calling on our lives. 
So a lot of times we see the list of sinful behavior in Colossians 3, like it's a cost of entry. You can't come in here if you got all of that stuff. None of us would be welcome, but it's not the case. That's not what the gospel is. When Paul says sexual immorality or impurity or lust or evil desires or greed or idolatry, when he says these things, he's not saying, you gotta leave all of that at the door. You can't come in. He's saying, no, God has welcomed you in through Christ. And because he has, those things don't have to stay anymore. You can find life and healing. And I love that he separates this list into two sections. You catch that? You go through the first one, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, and you might be feeling okay. You're like, all right, I think I got through that list. All right, well, keep reading. Chapter three gets to anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and do not lie. And we did all that on the way in this morning, right? But it's not the price of admission. See, to live in this way with this list of sin is actually to give ourselves that is not to light, things that are not life-producing. It's to surrender to things that have already lost the battle because Christ has already defeated it. It's to be comfortable with things that are actually sucking the life out of us. And it's to give space to something that you don't have to anymore. Brother and sister in Christ, you are as loved today as you ever will be. However, these things are not things that you have to give space in your life anymore. Again, according to Wright, a commentator, he says in Colossians, when Paul says, continue to live your life in chapter two, six through seven, and again here in three, it is a Jewish literal rendering of walking in life. You have it, walk in it. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians. So what does it mean to walk in this life? Well, this is what Paul says in our text today. And we're gonna read this several times. I want you to commit this to memory. Colossians 3, one through four. Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. That's our reality. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ comes, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let's talk about this, living your life in him. There are three fo uh, focal points of the verses of this chapter three that we just read. And these three points of Paul's uh, layers together of what it means to live your life in him. And these are the three we wanna spend our time with. The first one is life is already a reality. Second, life involves the mind and the will. And third, life is focused on the kingdom. So life is already a reality. And we talked about this already this morning and we've talked about it for the last several weeks, but I just wanna make sure it's clear. For those that are in Christ, life is a now experience. It's a present experience. We don't believe in fire insurance. We don't believe that we give ourselves to Christ so we don't have to experience something bad down the road. That is much too small of a good news. What we believe is for those of us that are in Christ, heaven actually reaches back into now and changes things. So that brother and sister, you can experience hope, joy, love, and peace. You can be restored in relationships. You can find healing from addiction. That is the reality now. We don't wait for it. Y'all, we don't see this sinful list as something that we just have to, we have to grim and battle against until Jesus comes back. 
We see it as something that he's already brought victory for right now. And it doesn't mean the battle in those places aren't hard, it is. It is a battle. But we know that the victory is won and the realities of heaven are here for us now. And even though it looks like it's something else outside of us, right? When we look out into the world, it looks like the sky is falling in many different ways, but we know that he is at work and that his kingdom has already broken in. And we experience that by the way that we've experienced life ourselves. Let me give you an illustration. There's a pastor named Carlos Whitaker um, who wrote a book called To Kill the Spider. And he, uh, his, he's a son of a pastor who was a revivalist and traveled around the world. And he, Carlos was going to therapy, like an intense inpatient therapy to really to save his life and his marriage. And as he was going, his dad tells him this story of when he was traveling evangelist and he was teaching in Panama. And this is what he says. I was preaching a three-day revival in a small church by the ocean. The first night I preached my heart out. I preached hard and loud. Many were touched by God. And towards the end of the invitation, a little woman named Miss Ramirez comes walking down the aisle. She made her way down the center and walked very slowly towards the front. And when she finally got to me, I asked why she had come forward. And she said this, Pastor, I need you to pray that the Lord cleans, cleans the cobwebs out of my life. I have so many cobwebs. Could you please pray? And so I obliged. I prayed that the Lord would clean the cobwebs out of her life. And she thanked me and went on her way. On night two of the revival, I saw her get up again, the pastor said. Little Miss Ramirez came walking down the aisle and she said, Pastor, can you pray for me again? Could you please pray that the Lord would clean the cobwebs out of my life? And so the pastor tried to remind her, hey, we prayed about this last night. I'm sure the Lord will honor uh, these prayers. You can trust in the confidence that God is with you. And Miss Ramirez wasn't having that. And she wears him down. And so he prays for her again. Night three, she gets up, she comes forward at the end of the night. He's thinking, hopefully this is to report back that God is taking care of the cobwebs because I don't know what to do with Miss Ramirez. So she gets to the front and she says, pastor, will you clean the cobwebs? And finally, whether it be from exasperation or from wisdom, the pastor said this, I'm not gonna pray for the cobwebs anymore. I'm gonna pray in this way. Father, we don't ask that tonight you clean the cobwebs from Miss Ramirez's life. In fact, Lord, keep them there for now. But tonight we ask for something much greater. Tonight we ask that you kill the spider in Miss Ramirez's life. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. See, the point is, is we so often in our lives, we just manage things that are producing cobwebs. We just battle with whether it's addiction or pride or self-preservation or our pursuit of money or whatever it is. We just, we just manage these things when the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I've come so that there is victory over evil and sin, that there's victory over self, that there is victory over all of the things that hold you. And maybe the first step for us today is to quit managing the things that are producing cobwebs and to kill the very thing. And really theologically, we don't kill it. We bring it to the one who does instead of pretending like he doesn't know it's there, right? Keeping it, sweeping it under the rug like he doesn't know that it's right there under the rug. Adam and Eve were hiding from God in the garden. We haven't stopped since. 
So we bring it to the one who can kill the spider because life is a reality now. Secondly, life involves the mind and the will. It involves the mind and the will. It is both and. It is a mental practice. It is a mental belief. It is oriented what we believe in Jesus, but it is married to actionable obedience. Training the mind develops healthy habits. However, it is possible to learn and learn and never do. So Paul says, I want you to set your hearts, your will. I want you to set all that you are on things above. And I want you to set your minds on things above. So let's talk about those two things. Set your mind on things above. Because what you spend your energy worshiping, thinking, obsessing over, it's gonna control a lot of things about how you live your life. If you believe a fear narrative, you're gonna live a fearful life, right? If you set your mind on things above the problems, on things of Christ, on the victory of Jesus, it changes how we see everything else in the world. But here's the deal. Our lives are too cluttered and filled with all the distractions in life for us to have any margin. We have no capacity for prayerful reflection. We have no capacity, no attention to spend more than a couple of minutes in scripture. And when we do get into scripture, it is not fulfilling for us because it doesn't provide the same dopamine hit that our cell phone does. Do I need a medal here, church? Next time we're at the traffic light, see how long it takes you to wanna reach for your phone. Or next time you're sitting in a quiet room, see how long it takes you to be anxious. Or how many of you can't go on a run without listening to a podcast, right? Because we gotta be productive. We can't leave space for, to just be and to be in silence. And it affects every other part of us. And so he's gonna say, I want you to meditate. I want you to stop and look to Christ, to focus on him. I wanted to bring something back. We've preached on this before, but this is from John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he says, it may be the case that this, one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry and overlooked, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry and overload. And then the cycle begins again. We need to think seriously about how technology and our calendars are affecting us. And if you're in the room and you're retired and you think this doesn't apply to you, nah. Some of y'all are more busy than me, right? You fill your calendar with all of these things going on and there's no marginality. So we have no sense of God working around us in the mysterious and beautiful ways that God's at work because we don't see anyone around us and we're right to the next thing. And so we set our minds on things that are above. In the last three years, the McMahons, we have moved twice in a pandemic. We've finished a doctoral degree. Lauren has nearly finished with her degree. Yeah, she went back to school while raising two little ones and being pregnant. And I could go on and on. We cared for other people in our family. And the other day, a friend of mine, I was spending the last week in a continuing ed. And one of my friends was like, how did you survive? How did you do it? And how did you manage to stay sane through everything that was going on? Well, firstly, sane and sanity is subjective. And uh, there's times where I didn't do that super well, but there were seasons where I felt even, even in the midst of the hardship, pretty healthy. 
So I spent the rest of the week just thinking about how would I answer him and two things came to mind. One, I wake up before everyone else. That sounds silly, but it has a point. And two, friends. I had margin. There were times when I was awake before anyone else in my house and I spent time with God, not listening to people talk about God, but spent time with God. Margin in my life. And secondly, friends, not just people that are acquaintances that we say hi to at church, but people that know my deepest fears, my deepest insecurities. And in the seasons where I was lowest or I was being a jerk at home, they would call me to task and say, this is the truth of the gospel and I'm calling you to answer to this. Or I wanna pray over you or you're not being yourself. Marginality, space, and friendship, community. This is the only way that we can set our minds and set our wills, our hearts, our obedience on God. Because on the flip side of the mind, we can spend our whole life in church and still be racist. We can take every book on the Holy Spirit and read it and not know what it is to live out a fruitful life. And this is why discipleship accountability is important. Learning to be doers of the word as the book of James puts it. But it cannot be just about what is above the neck as Falwell tried to infer in our opening illustration. As a matter of fact, theologically and biblically, the idea that what we believe being separated from how we live is a non-starter. And for those of you that are here, if you didn't know, you're in a Methodist church today. We are Wesleyan and we believe in a very real way in the new birth. We emphasize it saying that when we give our lives to Christ, the spirit of the Lord raises us up from the dead. There is a new life. As Paul puts it here, the old is gone. The new is here. You've been raised with Christ. And so when we are raised with Christ, it is not just what we profess to, like it's some kind of Facebook status but it's something that's lived out. It changes everything because the spirit of the Lord is within us. When we set our minds and our heart on him and our life is now different. And third, our life must be focused on the kingdom. The object of the activity of our minds and our will are in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just like ethereal Christianity but it's on the gospel that says that Jesus is at the right hand of God and that his kingdom is breaking in. It is already, even if it is not yet. So our focus is right there. Look at Colossians 3 one more time. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God who when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Church, walking in life is to keep your mind and heart actively focused on heaven. This is not like the trite saying, oh, they're too heavenly minded to be earthly good. No, for those focused on heaven, they begin to see where heaven has already come on earth and more importantly, the potential of where it can. They begin to live in the reality that we have, practicing hope, joy, love, and peace and resurrection and breakthrough, bringing justice into the world, being stewards of God's grace in the world. Those are the folks that are focused on heaven. 
They're not absent of the world. They're absent of the menial and important in the crud that we deal with. They are absent from that and they are very attentive of what should have been and what can be. That's those who are focused on the kingdom of God. One commentary puts it this way. The command to aspire to the things of heaven is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life and on the fact that he is now enthroned as the Lord of the world. The Bible does not say very much about heaven, but its central feature is clear. It is the place where the crucified Christ already reigns, where his people already have full rights of citizenship. To concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ on that unique blend of love and strength revealed in the gospels is to begin on earth to reflect the very life of heaven. To live in life given to us in the resurrection is to refuse to wait for heaven, but to live heaven now. Years ago, I hired this guy in the church onto the staff at a church, a different church I was serving. And he was a big sports fan. He was moving from out of state. And so as he was moving here, I think he went to a small Christian college. And so I don't even think they had football. And as he moved to Texas, he thought, I'm gonna adopt one of these Texas schools. and I'm gonna be a football fan there. And so when he gets uh, to town, the first few friends that he made were all Aggies. They all went to A&M. And so he adopted Texas A&M as his team and he was gonna support them and, uh, and cheer on with people around him. It was a sports thing and a communal thing. And I encouraged it, whatever, it's great. Until a few weeks later, and I see him and he walks into the church wearing a Texas Tech hat. And I said, Ryan, I don't think this is the unforgivable sin, but we need to talk about what it means to have allegiance to a school. I don't even care if you pick the team I support but you can't go around wearing this hat three weeks in, right? And we gave him swag too. It's not like he didn't have any A&M swag, but we had a talk, we moved on. A few months later, months later, I forgot all about this. He walks into staff meeting and he's wearing burnt orange <laughs> from the University of Texas. And that my friends is the unforgivable sin. <laughs> and so we had this talk like, dude, you... You're just an Aggie by name. It doesn't mean anything to you. If you could just put on this hat when someone gives it to you, it means nothing. It doesn't cost anything for you. And I got very preachy, right? Now this is petty and silly because it's about athletes throwing a ball. But here's the thing. Too many of us have allegiances in all different kinds of things. And when we give our allegiances to everything, we actually don't have allegiance in anything. And so what Paul's trying to do is saying, hey, you're camping out in places that are actually taking life from you. I don't want you to feel bad that you can't come in here unless you get all of this straightened out. I just want you to experience the deep life that's already been given for you. You've got this gift that you've only opened like the, like, a small part of it. Like you've gotten into the hardware. You hadn't even seen the whole thing. Open up the whole gift, live into it. That's what Paul is trying to do. Friends, we've given our allegiances to sin and busyness and worldly consumption and pursuit of career and vacations and whatever it is. And Paul and Jesus wants to call us deeper into him because why? Because life is here. 
Christ is in you. So let's live Christ today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.